0: Turn with me to this morning's text found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, and we'll begin reading at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, For we share in Christ, if only we hold our first confidence firm to the end. While it is said, Today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Who were they that heard and yet were rebellious? Was it not all those who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses? And with whom was he provoked forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should never enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Fifty years ago, the evangelicals in the
1: Staatskirche of Germany, especially the Lutherans, formed what became known as die bekennende Kirche, or the Confessing Church. They opposed the German Christian Church movement, which was sponsored by the Nazis between 1933 and 1945. And as the Nazi dominance increased during those years, the Confessing Church more and more had to go underground. In 1935, the Confessing Church formed a preacher's seminary, as they called it, in the little town of Zinkst on the Baltic Sea, and then within a few months moved to Finkenwalde in Pomerania. The first principal and main teacher of this little seminary of 25 students was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 29-year-old pastor and university professor from Berlin. Bonhoeffer led the students in Finkenwalde in a very rigorous daily life together of prayer and meditation and worship and study and recreation and work. And all the seminarians knew in those frightening days that they were living on the brink. In September of 1937, the seminary was closed by the S.S., And a month later, in November of 37, the seminarians were all arrested. That same year, Bonhoeffer published a little book entitled The Cost of Discipleship, which many of you have read with great help. In fact, the term cheap grace has found its way almost into the common lingo of our evangelical life from that book. September 1938, a year later, Bonhoeffer put in book form the lessons of Finkenwalde called Life Together. How to live together as Christians in this world and under threat. Here we have the insights that are going to be very important for us this morning. And the reason they have so much authenticity for us yet today, almost 50 years later, is because they were written not in the comfort of the center, but on the edges of in danger. March 1943, Bonhoeffer participated in an attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler. April 5th, he was arrested. Two years later in the concentration camp at Flossenberg, he was hanged at the age of 39, one year older than I am. One of his students in Finkenwalde wrote Bonhoeffer wanted a genuine, natural community in the preacher's seminary. And this community was practiced in play, in walks through the richly wooded and beautiful district of Pomerania, during the evenings spent in listening to someone reading, in making music and singing, and last not least, in worship together and Holy Communion. He kept entreating us to Live together naturally, not to make worship an exception. He rejected all false and hollow sentiment. Bonhoeffer's little book, Life Together, still in print. I urge you, if you've never read it, to buy it and read it. And I think it will help you much. Life Together. This little book is for our times because we in America are plagued with a laissez-faire Christianity that lacks the rigorous camaraderie and deep discipline of friendship that unites a kingdom in wartime. We don't have a wartime mentality like we ought to, and therefore our young men and young women do not gather together late at night in basement rooms and plot their strategies to detonate Satan's bridgeheads and liberate the captives. We go about our business pretty much as though it was peacetime and all was well. We don't see ourselves as insurgents in the alien territory of sin, planting explosives of righteousness and truth and gospel at every fortified wall, and therefore... Our eyes don't very often meet with that flame of eternal friendship on Nicollet Mall, and say to each other without a word amid a thousand aliens, you and I, we're committed to this cause and we'll die for it and join hands in the resurrection. We don't feel like fifth column people devoted with all our strength to sabotage the rule of Satan in this world. And therefore, our life together is not intense, it is petty. There are no coded handshakes, are there, of joy, no secret passwords. And there are very few tearful embraces and songs of thanks because a squad of witnesses has come back alive with victory and captives. Taken from Satan's concentration camps. Bonhoeffer's words about life together have the ring of authenticity to us. Because they were written not at the center of comfort and security where most of us live. But at the brink. There's a taste of radical commitment in those books of his. That we all dream about and many of us crave. And only a few pursue. Here's what he wrote. The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have it every day. Among earnest Christians in the church today, there is a growing desire to meet together with other Christians and in the rest periods of their work for common life under the word. Communal life is again being recognized by Christians today as the grace that it is, as the extraordinary, the roses and lilies of the Christian life. And then Bonhoeffer comes to a passage which is utterly crucial for my theme this morning, which comes from Hebrews 3. Here's what he says. If somebody asks a Christian, where is your salvation, your righteousness? He can never point to himself. He points to the word of God in Jesus Christ, which assures him of salvation and righteousness. He is as alert as possible to this word because he daily hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He daily desires the redeeming word, but God has put his word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek him and find his living word in the witness of a brother in the mouth of a man. Therefore, a Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. Now, let's look together at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. I encourage you to open your Bibles with me. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. What I want to do is show you that what Bonhoeffer is saying here is not the spinnings out of a human mind, but the recollection of biblical truth that is utterly essential for our life together at Bethlehem. Here's the question you should ask yourself as I read these verses from Hebrews 3. How important is it for me to live together with other believers in such a way that I can give and receive personal biblical exhortation every day from other saints? Let's read it together. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if only we hold our first confidence firm to the end. Three observations about this tremendously important text. One, sin wages a constant battle against you to deceive your heart and harden it into unbelief. And if you give way and it succeeds, you slip into unbelief and fall away from the living God. Second observation. The evidence and the confirmation of whether we have any share in Christ is whether we hold our first confidence firm to the end. Hebrews sees two possibilities for professing Christians, and I say professing Christians. Because that's what I have to address on Sunday morning, and that's what the Bible addresses God knows who the real ones are. There are two possibilities for you professing Christians. One, either you hold fast your first confidence to the end and therefore give evidence that you really have a share in Christ. Or you become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin And fall away from God into unbelief and show that you did not really have a share in Christ. Third observation from this text. The means appointed by God to enable you all to persevere to the end, holding fast your first confession. The means appointed by God to enable you to persevere is mutual exhortation among believers. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that no one among you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It is very certain that the saints will persevere to the end and be saved. Those who have become sharers in Christ by the new birth will hold their first confidence firm to the end and be saved. But one of the evidences that you are among the number of those who have been born of God and are being preserved by God is that when you hear the word of God telling you the means by which you can persevere, you listen. Thank him and pursue that means. And the evidence that you are not of God and will not persevere is that when you hear the living God declare to you the means by which you can persevere, you say, I don't need that, thank you, I'm saved. The text makes it very clear that the means by which God intends to guard you for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, is the communion of saints mutually exhorting each other every day to hold fast. Eternal security is a community project. Not just prayer, not just worship, Not just the sacraments, not just Bible reading, but daily exhortation from other believers is God's appointed means for your preservation in faith. And those of you who belong to God will avail yourself of the means and will make it. One of the most important questions facing the staff of this church now, the pastoral staff especially, is what should we do to encourage you, to help you live together or meet together in smaller groups where you can obey this text, Hebrews 3.13, and exhort each other. With the promises and the warnings and the commands of Scripture. How can we make the priesthood of all believers a reality at Bethlehem? How can we help you to form the kind of group life or community life that makes Hebrews 3.13 a fact and not a fairy tale that we dream about? Exhort one another Every day, as long as it is called today, that you not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, part of the answer for us on the staff to that question is found in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. And I invite you to turn with me to the 10th chapter of this same book. The writer to the Hebrews is concerned in this passage with more than Helping the church persevere in faith, although that is very crucial to him still here. He goes beyond that and says, what must the church do in order to stir itself up to love and good works? Because those two are essential in our act of perseverance. Let's read it together. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. You see the combination there? The promise undergirding the command, the indicative undergirding the imperative for you theologians. God's faithfulness undergirding our obedience. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. But encouraging, now that's the same word as in chapter 3, verse 13. There it's translated exhort, here it's translated encourage. Exhorting or encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The closer we get to the second coming, the more we need to meet together in small groups to exhort one another. Don't you remember what Jesus said In the last days, the love of many will grow ice cold. How then shall we stir one another up to love and good works? Don't neglect to meet together. The text envisions not just haphazard meetings on the street in which you encourage one another. It envisions planned gatherings for the purpose of exhortation. Bonhoeffer said, The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength for the believer. Hebrews says, meet together, meet together, meet in homes, meet at work, meet in restaurants. Don't neglect meeting together. How else can we exhort one another? To hold fast our first confidence? How else can we regularly stir up each other to love and good work and strategies of salvation for the lost? And when you meet, don't throw it away with glib conversation, consecrated by the Word of God and prayer. Now, notice the warning in this verse here. It says, don't neglect to meet together. And then this ominous phrase here, and you wonder who he's talking about. As is the habit of some. Professing Christians are always in danger of forming the habit of not meeting together. Aren't you? Aren't I? Always in danger of forming the habit of not Meeting together. The habit of not coming to church but once a week. The habit of not having any small group. The habit of not gathering together as a family. You form habits. You don't mean it so much. It just becomes a habit. And then you're not doing it. Month in, month out, year in, year out. Habits enslave you in destructive clutches of hardness. Are you part of a regular gathering of Christians which is small enough so that you can give and receive personal biblical exhortation? If not, you're in danger. Bonhoeffer was speaking biblical truth when he said, A Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. I couldn't live without these two guys right here. And Dean and the interns. I could not be the pastor of this church without them. If they vanished, I'd have to find somebody else. And I don't know how some of you make it. And that's why many of you aren't making it. Let me try to put this message now in a wider context. We've been working for the past year on a philosophy of ministry on the staff and have got it pretty well hammered out to our own satisfaction. We laid it before the task force for about 10 weeks last fall. They refined it and improved it. And now I'm prepared and we'll lay it before the leadership of the church soon and before you all. You remember those Sunday school classes way back last summer? That was part of it. Part of the philosophy of ministry says that there are three relationships that every maturing Christian must be growing in. First, a relationship with God as most important, characterized by trust and devotion, worship and obedience. Second, the relationship with other believers in the body of Christ, characterized by mutual exhortation based on God's redeeming word. And third relationships with unbelievers, with the world around us, characterized by witness in hopeful words and loving deeds. Now, what you've been hearing for the past two weeks and what you will hear next week are biblical foundations for these three priorities. You remember last Sunday was going hard after the Holy God. And basically what I was doing without telling you was providing biblical foundation for priority number one at Bethlehem. Going hard after the holy God will always be number one. Today I'm providing, I hope, the biblical foundation for priority number two, helping each other inside the body endure to the end and stirring each other up to love and good works. And next Sunday, my aim is to provide the biblical foundation for our outreach to the world and participation in the global mission of Jesus Christ. As long as I'm the pastor of Bethlehem and as long as these two guys are on the pastoral staff knowing where they stand priority number one will always be a radical all-out God-centeredness. And I don't think you'd have it any other way, would you? That's why we stress worship so heavily At Bethlehem. That's why out of the 168 hours of the week, one hour we attempt to guard as closely as we can against the pervasive encroachments of the horizontal. Good as they are. That's this hour all of our relationships with each other in the body of Christ, all of our relationships with the world out there would be deeper, more powerful, and purer if we would put ourselves and them aside and go hard after God one hour at least a week. We have so much to learn. How to do a prelude for God. How to do an organ praise for God how to give our offering for God, how to hear a sermon for God. Even when I preach, as I am this morning, on the horizontal dimension of Christian life, I try to do it in such a way that it is not chatty or familiar, but rather has behind it the authority of God, the aroma of His sovereignty, And the tremendous seriousness of heaven and hell. There is a different tone to this service and this proclamation to what you'll hear tonight. When I come down out of this pulpit, meet with you and interact with you in the lesson of the word in a horizontal family time. None of this is by accident. And it regrets me that some of you only see this dimension of life at Bethlehem. Don't come back on Sunday night or Wednesday night when it's different still. From the philosophy of ministry and from Ephesians 4, Tom and Steve and Dean and I believe it is our call to study the Word of God, to pray and to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Ministry towards God in worship, ministry towards each other in mutual exhortation and service, and ministry towards the world in witness, indeed, and in word. And nothing would bring us more pleasure than to see all of you growing step by step in each of those three relationships while the Lord adds people to the church at Bethlehem. We'll be praying, thinking, and planning this year on how we can better exhort each other every day, lest there be in any of us an evil heart of unbelief leading us to fall away from the living God. We'll be studying how we can successfully urge all of you, even those who've never done it maybe, to get into a group of believers that's small enough so that you can give and receive personal biblical exhortation and thus obey Hebrews 3.13, And stand firm to the end, fighting the fight of faith. In the meantime, why don't you go ahead and take the initiative to find a few friends and say to them something like, you know, I've been praying a lot about whether I should uh, get together with anybody and the Lord sort of laid it on my heart to ask you, you, have you been thinking about that? I don't want to put any pressure on you, but I sure need somebody to help me fight the fight of faith. Could we meet for lunch or for prayer once a week or so? I think you could say that to somebody. Many of you are in such groups, and I praise the Lord for that. And I'll be praying that uh, we'll do better as a staff to help you and that you will do better in taking the initiative to pursue that. You know that if the Gestapo was closing in on us, If we knew that at any time people from our number could just just vanish like they do sometimes in Russia and China, just vanish, never to appear again out of this number. We never see them again. If we knew that was happening periodically, oh, would we meet in our homes and in our secret rendezvous with joy to strengthen each other's hands in the Lord. Wouldn't we? Wouldn't it be intense Wouldn't we embrace? Wouldn't love cover a multitude of sins that annoy us in our petty life together today? Well, there's no if about it. We're in war. Don't you believe that? We are in wartime. And there are thousands of lives hanging in the balance Danger of hard hearts, unbelief, cool love, American luxury, lurking at every turning point of our lives. Oh, how we need to exhort one another every day, lest Satan gain a foothold and harden us and cause us to drift away in worldliness and sense no urgency about the life and death war that is going on for the lives of men inside and outside the church. Don't you feel a need to get together with people and strategize how to plant explosives at the door of Satan's concentration camps? Does it bother you that they exist and they're being cooked in the ovens every day? I need help. When Tom prays in our group, I get flames for righteousness. When Steve prays in this pulpit, I'm renewed. Don't you need that with me? Friday night, I called Daniel Fuller, who is a professor of hermeneutics at Fuller Seminary, the son of Charles Fuller, who many of you remember. Daniel Fuller wrote me a letter a few weeks ago, and I called him, I said, Dan, could I quote from this letter? I know it's very personal, and it exposes your own sense of need and he said sure go ahead Daniel I think is somewhere 57 58 years old so he's not just uh, one of us young folks who might uh, cotton to Dietrich Bonhoeffer more readily he wrote me and he said I believe you read my exhortation about the need for churches to build Situations where people can carry out the commands of Hebrews 3.12 and 10.24. If we are really supposed to exhort each other daily, then we must have small groups meeting to help each other fight the good fight of faith. Since you are a pastor and know what it's like to be a pastor, tell me what you think can be done to carry out these imperatives of Hebrews. Do you see any way, John, we could get people willing to meet regularly with a few others to help themselves with the fight of faith? Your sermons help me and others much in fighting the good fight. But I need more, and I think others feel the same need. Your ministry is extending to one fledgling cell group in Riverside. I'm praying much that this group will not fall apart, for everybody needs to be in one. I've got to get into one somehow soon. I can't fight the fight of faith alone, even with the help of your very beneficial sermons. I have to have people exhorting me in a small group. Otherwise, I am discarding an important means of grace commanded by Scripture your cohort, to shepherd the multitudes distressed and scattered abroad with much love, Dan Fuller. Let's pray together. Majestic and holy God, my prayer to you in the name of Jesus Christ, my Savior right now, is that this word of exhortation, which is from you, would not fall on deaf ears or hard hearts but that everyone who has sat under the hearing of this word would feel a longing to be a part of a group in which they can obey Hebrews 3.13 and thus be guarded for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Would you grant, Lord, that our lives have a wartime mentality about them? Grant that Our lives be streamlined and simplified for your urgent cause. Grant that there be a new intense commitment to meet and exhort each other every day. Grant that we not be hard and cool, but soft and warm, plotting strategies of love to explode the gates of Satan's concentration camps.